0: Good afternoon, Dr. Dan here. Today is the 30th of March, 2022. We're still talking about type 2 diabetes and obesity because it is a topic that requires this amount of lecture material. I've been trying to bring back a lot of um, primary research literature and intermingling that with my lecture notes. And so we're going to do today more in the primary literature than we have been because of a couple of important aspects of obesity and type 2 diabetes that are linked to not just cardiovascular disease and metabolic disorders, but also I want to bring back the well-known and regarded concept of obesity being linked to various forms of cancer. So that's what we're doing today. And I will put all the papers I'm going to be talking about in the show notes. So here's a paper published uh, in Cancer Research in 2018. And of course, it tells us that obesity is very important in the United States. And it seems to be linked as a high risk factor for the incidence of cancer. In particular, there's epidemiological and clinical evidence that obesity is highly correlated to many forms of breast cancer particularly in postmenopausal women. In fact, women that are postmenopausal who develop breast cancer, particularly of the variety that are hormone that is hormone linked, over 40% of those postmenopausal uh, breast cancer patients are also obese. So there is a very strong influence of endocrine therapy resistance involved here. Obese breast cancer patients are more likely to be diagnosed, unfortunately, with larger, higher grade tumors when they're first isolated. And this means that you're going to have a much higher level of metastases and an elevated risk, not only of remission when there is pharmacotherapeutic or radiotherapeutic or surgical techniques um, use this therapy to try to remove or to ablate uh, the uh, development of the cancer, the possibility of recurrence is still very high in this population and unfortunately also mortality is very high. what is it about high body weight uh, obesity that seems to make these tumors more aggressive? Well, you know, from listening to my uh, lectures for the last several years, or if you had me in class before that, that obesity uh, being a chronic metabolic disease, which is multiple uh, fluorid and has not only a metabolic component involved in bioenergetics, and inflammation; those are two things that come to mind. Um, the other major uh, concept that you have to understand about obesity is that it is a not a state that the human body evolved having to deal with. Obesity would have been very rare during the evolution of metabolism in humans, which is only you know a couple hundred thousand years old. Now, I know a lot of people point to the mammalian models or even to um, non-human primates and say, well, isn't their metabolism very similar? And it's like, no, actually, it's not. Um, Many mammals uh, can live off of a higher um, diet of green tissue, that is chloriferous tissue coming from plants, because of the way that they metabolize carbohydrate. And we've talked about this. Uh, particularly the polygastric mammals. Now, when you're talking monogastric, like non-human primates, the other major significant difference between non-human primates and humans is, of course, in the central nervous system. And you might argue, well, okay, that's true, that there's aspect of the way that the brain is organized in humans. It's unique from, say, our closest non-primate relatives. And maybe just the rearrangement of nuclei, maybe something to do with the fornix. Uh, maybe there is some slight modification in the limbic system. And of course, the massive increase in the prefrontal cortex and its layering, right? you probably heard this if you took a neuroanatomy course. But it doesn't stop there. That's only anatomy. What about the physiology? And of course, because it's authentic biochemistry, what about biochemistry? And that includes, of course, alteration of gene expression. Well, it's vastly different in humans than it is in non-human primates. Not just the components of the endocrine, paracrine, autocrine systems that regulate oh, tissue differentiation and tissue development and organ development, but also the entire repertoire of skeletal muscle mass and adipose tissue as organ systems in their own right are directly related to the the composition of them and the mass of them and their own endocrine, paracrine, and autocrine capability, that is specifically the adipose and the muscle is significantly different because of the alteration in the central nervous system. So the signaling from the adipose is different. And then all the downstream processing of gene expression, which not only involves, say, splicing of RNA to unique transcripts for unique uh, polypeptide biosynthesis, but the lipids themselves, and again, I won't... um, making excuses for the fact that I'm a lipid biochemist. And so I talk about lipids almost every lecture, not because I, I have to find a reason to it's because you must, if you're going to talk anything about biochemistry, um, the lipids in human central nervous system are unique. It has to do with the arrangement of the very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids of the omega three versus omega six geometrical and positional, uh, species. But also, uh, not just the composition, it's the sequence of these lipids in the neural and in the glial membrane system, which is unique. And this, of course, relates to lipid metabolism sensus strictu, but not just local lipid metabolism, such as in the CNS. It, of course, is going to be a homeostatic system, which means it's going to involve the liver and the adipose and the muscle. Uh, and of course, all the other organ systems are going to contribute at some level in signaling and controlling lipid metabolism. And by this, I'm talking mostly about lipoproteins moving and trafficking, but that's only the rough cutout, right? We're really talking about an alteration of lipid molecular species, which play unique roles in human because of the unique um Physio- physiology, anatomy, and biochemistry of our central nervous system. And there are unique aspects of all three of those components. And so what I'm talking about, that is molecular genetics. And then I haven't even uh, gotten out of breath yet, and I, and I have to introduce epigenetics. The epigenetic component, which is l- a learned, adaptive, immune-based alteration of gene expression, which can be written, read and erased multiple times during a lifetime, and therefore leaves very little trace behind, is a dynamic event ontology. And there's aspects of that um, molecular component, which involve the epigenetic modification of gene expression in specific tissues that are unique to humans as compared to non-human primates. And I brought these up several times over the years. I don't have time right now to do that. I just want to make it clear that looking at animal models can only get us so far. Sure, we can look at cellular differentiation, we can look at gene expression, but really getting into understanding um, the human being as a biochemical uh, species um, is uh, only going to be um, arrived at by studying the biochemistry of humans. And it's because we are definitely sui generis. There are no other species which come close to us in terms of biochemical similarity. Even though you hear an argument of, oh, gene expression being very similar and the structure of genes being very similar. When you start talking about the expression of the genes, all of that argument just falls apart. Okay. Okay. So... Breast cancer, then, again, obesity is studied often in rodent models, rat and mouse, particularly mouse because you could do uh, knockouts, right? And we've learned a lot about insulin, insulin resistance associated with type 2 diabetes. We've learned about growth factors and cytokines and chemokines and chronic inflammation, both low-grade and then episodic high-grade cytokine uh, burst sort of processes that can occur in an obesogenic environment. Now the animal models have been used very successfully in understanding human cancer. And there have been both syngenic and transgenic, uh, particularly murine models, that have looked at basically immune functions which are very similar to humans because we have introduced a human immune system, and I put these in heavy quotes, into some of these rodent models by growing up sterile mice. I've talked about this procedure before, how that's done in the laboratory. And because you have a sterile animal, you can then introduce an immune system, right? By basically introducing immune cells grafted from human um, tissues, for example, from bone marrow. Now, the problem with that is that you're not thinking about the microbiota. There's the same argument that I was having about specific biochemical um, motifs in human versus that in uh, any of the other um, non-human primates. The fact that the microbiota are distinct from non-human primates and humans and the fact that this uh, microbiota in the form of biofilms in various cavities in the body play a significant role in the normal physiological homeostatic responses to the environment. And all of this then will bring you right into the immune system and the epigenomic immune system. So that why is that important? Because that's where healthy tissues start to be converted to a pathology. And those pathologies turn into a pathophysiological response, which have as their core architectonic, a pathobiochemical event ontology, okay? So you look at the animal models, though, you can study cancers, and, and again, we can look at transgenic models. We've done a lot of this. We've also done the syngenic work. Now, syngenic mouse models or rat models, it just means that they're very genetically similar, maybe even identical in terms of genome, that is at, at some superficial level. And then the argument, which is again one of these huge inductions, right? Logical induction is that they're because they're immunologically compatible, then any of the immune responses we see in these animal models are going to be played out very similarly in humans. And I can tell you that years and years and years of studying the immune system by reading the literature and by teaching it um, have taught me that uh, nothing could be further from the truth. The human immune system and the way the immune system is used in the humans uh, in terms of tailoring gene expression and using cytokines, chemokines, uh, growth factors, and matrix metalloproteases, all of which can be secreted from immune cells in circulation or in tissue beds, highly regulate the alteration of gene expression, which again can be written read and erased all within a very short time window and yet tremendously affect things like cell fate, okay? But having said all that, what do we know from the animal models? Well, we know that there are cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha and the interleukin-6 family. And they seem to play a major role uh, in being controlled by some of the transcription factors linked to breast cancer and indeed chronic inflammation. Now, where have you heard chronic inflammation before? My whole argument about how obesity is a chronic inflammatory pandemic disease, because it is, because of dyslipidemia, right? We talked about how fatty acids can cause lipotoxicity. We talked about how glucose can cause inflammation. We even talked about amino acid catabolism can cause inflammation. Uh, and of course the production of eicosanoids, which brings us right back to lipids, right? All right. So again, looking at a couple of different cytokines that are associated with breast cancer in humans, tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin 6 working through transcription factors that are involved in the production of these cytokines, but also these cytokines signaling through these transcription factors, okay? So you have NF-kappa B and STAT3, right? And this is all linked up now to chronic inflammatory responses in breast cancer. So infiltration of macrophages that produce those kinds of cytokines, the IL-6 family, let's just say, when that occurs in a tumor microenvironment, that's when you start to see enhancement of cancer development and approaching and moving into metastasis, So you have something called tumor-associated macrophages. I talked about these before. They're short, they're called TAMs. And what are they responsible for? Well, they seem to be highly correlated with angiogenesis, metastasis, and a decreased survival of breast cancer patients. So right away, you see the immune system is playing a role here in humans. Now, you do not see this same phenomenon in the animal model, although you can find components of it in the animal model. Okay, components of it. And that's where a lot of these terms came from, like tumor-associated macrophages. But again, the similarity sometimes moves the scientific community to thinking, well, because they're similar and we can detect this, uh, patterns, tissue pattern, for example, getting these tissue-specific macrophages in, um, in oncogenic environments in humans. Oh, they must be do- playing the same role. That's where the mistake is. That's that leap, that inductive leap that often gets us into trouble because we, we generate pharmaceuticals to try to target that. And then we find out, well, gosh, you know, it worked really well in the transgenic mouse model or in the syngenic mouse model. It doesn't work so well when you're using it in a human cohort study, right? Even in terms of safety features, you know, moving off moving off the very basic sort of um, cohort studies and moving into a head-to-head competition between a new pharmaceutical against a classical chemotherapeutic. Once again, a lot of that inductive process going from the animal model to the human model, it just falls away, right? Too much lumber was cut, too much wood was split, looking at the animal model and not enough looking at the human condition. Now that we can study human biology with a much finer, incidence of understanding because our techniques have improved particularly the non-invasive techniques such as scanning um, we're able to get much more information from living um, cancer patients and because of that we can do that comparison to the animal model this is where we go aha right the eureka moment look we're finding this in humans we didn't find this in the animal model and again my argument is the central nervous system that is the mind which capitulates what's in the brain, right? The mind acting as an agent um, controls a lot of the manifestation of biochemical phenomena because of the alteration of signaling related to the senses. And that has to do with things like the appetitive mode and all those things that I learned working with Yak Pengsep on uh, the affective centers in the brain. When you have a, um, a strong uh, desire to to uh, carry out some kind of uh, activity, some kind of behavior, and you're a human, you're going to modify the biochemical framework that allows that particular seeking response, right, or anger response, or feeding response, that satisfies something in the, in the human central nervous system, which is unique to the human, right? You understand how that works? And that means all the gene expression has to change and you're not getting that in a mouse brain. You're not getting that in an ape brain, okay? That's the point i try to make. Very, very important. Okay, so having said all that, again, Macrophages are definitely involved. These TAMs, these tumor associated macrophages seem to be involved in all of those, um, poor, um, uh, outcomes in breast cancer. Again, what are they? Angiogenesis, of course, metastasis, and then overall survival, right? Or disease free survival, which is very rare in postmenopausal uh, breast cancer patients. Okay. Very, very rare. All right, so we do know that there are many organs involved. Okay, what do you think? The the normal players, the liver, the kidney, but also the adipose and the skeletal muscle, okay? And that's why I'm bringing this back because we've been talking about that with our diabetic lectures, okay? All right. Now, to remind you what cytokines are, I know most of you have have used the terminology, most of you uh, medical doctors have, and people that have science backgrounds or graduate students, postdocs, or other faculty, okay, you know about cytokines, you work with them even. But a lot of people throw around terms and don't really um, go back and remember what those terms mean. And I'm because I do a lot of philosophical meanderings with my mind, I, I've learned from philosophy that you really have to always go back and define your terms. And in biochemistry, that means you have to come back and give... Uh, not just definitions, but a um, a plenum account of where um, organic compounds that have specific classification um, play a significant role in normal physiology and, of course, in pathophysiology and the underlying pathobiochemistry, which is why we're here, right? So what are (laughs) cytokines? They're small, uh, 15 to 20 kilodalton polypeptides, but they're very short-lived proteins. They turn over rapidly. They turn over rapidly because they're very potent and they function in a way like a hormone because they can work at the autocrine, paracrine, and endocrine level, right? So they can be secreted from those different types of cells or organs and they can do a signaling. They can bind to a receptor and conduct a change in the repertoire of whatever is downstream from that in the cell that they bound to the receptor on, the plasma membrane. So they act in a way like a hormonal response. But basically they're signaling molecules that have a potency that is associated with their short-lived nature. Because you don't just have one cytokine or a couple of cytokines playing a role, like, for example, compare insulin, glucagon, somatostatin from the pancreas, right? You have families of cytokines with unique receptors, and the receptors themselves can rebuild in a plasma membrane based on lipid membrane raft mobilization of those component receptors. So you develop a signaling response, a signalosome, in a cell that has been uh, challenged or has been activated by a specific cytokine. And again, there are many, many, many types of cytokines, even within a cytokine family. Like IL 6 and leukin 6 is a family of cytokines with unique receptors. So just talk about interleukin 6 um, ablation or interleukin 6 uh, down regulation or up regulation, like in the myokine story we just mentioned a few lectures ago it's way too broad of a brushstroke. You can't be talking about that because you have to say what specific cytokines. Okay, so they're small polypeptides. They have a short shelf life in circulation, right? They go, they're, in a way, they're like icosanoids. A couple of passes uh, through the, the entire system and then they are degraded. And again, whenever you see that, you know why? Because of the uh, high level of potency, biological potency that they carry with them. Now, a little bit more detail. Cytokines actually are composed of four alpha helicals, uh, alpha, uh, protein alpha helices. And so they tend to have a top to bottom topology where there are four uh, stacked helices. All of these are alpha helices. Again, a secondary protein structure. Also, the cytokine, that's one way to group cytokines. Another way to group them is how the structure associates with specificity and composition of what I was just um, waxing wonderful about their receptors, and particularly the receptor complexes, which again can be assembled and formed in situ, in time, based on the type of signaling that induces the receptor complex to form, okay? So the signaling isn't just bind to a receptor and then get a downstream response in the cell. The signaling is what will the complex look like for the receptor that will generate a signalosome in that cell? So it's a spontaneous event almost, and it's certainly an immediate event. And then they can be removed very rapidly as soon as the concentration of cytokine drops because of the degradation of the cytokine through uh, typical um, proteolytic pathways. So that means that cytokines are going to bind to multimeric, multi-compositional receptor complexes depending on the cell in which they're binding to. And each of the subunits of those receptors may themselves be carried over so that they always are there for a given class of cytokines, but the relative um, stoichiometry of those unit subunits, those individual subunits, and then the constellation that comes together to form the final receptor complex, that is often um, unique to the strength of the signaling, and then the co-signaling from other cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, for example. So now you get this, uh, hopefully you're getting the, the idea. And, and what I'm trying to tell you is the dynamic system, right? I keep on bringing back that this is a dynamic system. It is an event ontology. It's not a substance ontology. So we treat things like cytokines that they're just substances with a certain mass and they're in, the, they're in circulation and they just so happen to find a receptor. That is so far from the truth. It, it 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 infantilizes biochemistry to the point that I won't even regard it as biochemistry any longer. Biochemistry is is a it works in a way that it's constantly communicating and altering the cellular environment, and the cell responds to it because there is a global control over the whole system. We can call it a homeostatic control that is. Processing networks of signalosomes within cellular cellular profiles, within tissue profiles, and then within organ profiles. Right. So that's the that's the really that's always my take-home message that these signal transduction cascades are a dynamic system. They come together, they do a job, and then they go. Then they then they fall apart. So, anyways, you have a class of four helical cytokines, and they consist of some. 35 different interleukins, right? And they're named because they come—they were first described because they came from leukocytes, right? And some of those leukocytes are lymphocytes, right? And so different lymphocyte lineages, remember we talked about the Th1, Th2, Th17, um, <laughs> Tregs, we talked about different B-cell lineages and plasma cell lineages, obviously. We talked about all the recombination around making the T-cell receptor, right, or the immunoglobulins and the multiple classes of immunoglobulin switching. All of that is going to relate to the kind of interleukins that are going to interact with those cells and then induce an immune response. Okay. So what kind of uh, other classical mediators are involved with interleukin signaling are common hormones like prolactin, leptin, and adipokine, erythropoietin, thrombopoietin, and then uh, an interleukin-6 member of the family, leukemia inhibitor factor, or, or LIF. You also have OSM, which is oncostatin M. These are polypeptides. Some of them are interleukins, and some of them are adipokines, or they are naturally occurring uh, endocrine hormones involved in entirely different um, pathways, but which play a role in interleukin signaling, right? And interleukins, again, are going to be a component of that what we call cytokines. It's a class of the cytokines. So it's a real brief inter- introduction of what cytokines are, but I wanted to get that uh, description of interleukins in there, and I wanted you to get the dynamic history of how these compounds, just these are just polypeptides, but also the lipids, which help bring these polypeptides to the surface of the plasma membrane via the processing within the endoplasmic reticulum, in the Golgi apparatus, and also before that, the preliminary biosynthetic pathways in the mitochondria and the peroxisome to build the membrane to carry these proteins to the surface so they become those receptor complexes and then react with those cytokines right? So when you think about a cytokine, always think about its receptor and think about that wonderful symphony of interactions, all those instruments in play to make that sound so that you get the first movement of uh, Mozart's Requiem, right? So you get the idea. So, okay, I'm going to stop here because I'm out of time. Uh, Next time I'm going to get back into um, how obesity and type 2 diabetes relate to breast cancer. And then we're going to move into another area about uh, finger lip metabolism. All right, Dr. Dan Guerra on the 30th of March, 2022, saying bye for now.